This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, in our, our summer break series that we've called Original Virtue, Original Virtue, the abundant life, obviously hailing from John 10.10, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that that life would be an abundant life. Um, In this series, we're looking at a list of what I would refer to as divine and human characteristics. Divine and human characteristics that have long been called in the field of religion, the field of philosophy, virtues. Now I call them, and I'm not the first to do this, but I call these characteristics that we name virtues, I call them both divine and human, understanding that humans were created of the very essence of God. Humans were created in the very image of God. And as such, created in the image of God, the thing that Christianity has taught for the last 2,000 years, and we adopted this from our Jewish roots, is that we are embedded as human beings, the offspring of God, Paul called us. We are embedded in our very DNA and our very fabric with God's essence. And I believe the work of Christian salvation is to draw out that which is already there through that express image of God called Christ. We draw out that image of God that we were initially created with. Christian salvation is to draw out that which is already there and to help a person recognize their belovedness. And when they truly recognize their belovedness, when you really recognize who you are, and as we say, whose you are, when you recognize that belovedness to live into that belovedness and then to live out of that belovedness. So far in the series, we've spoken to two virtues. Two weeks ago, Pastor Melissa spoke to the virtue of wisdom. And I think that's a great place to begin. I really do believe that wisdom in a lot of ways is the fountainhead of all the virtues. And so Melissa two weeks ago talked about wisdom. Last week, um, I spoke to the virtue of gratitude. Many people believe that gratitude is one of the chief virtues, one of the original three. Some, many great scholars, philosophers have claimed that gratitude was the first. It is the first disposition of the healthy human heart. So we've talked about wisdom and we've talked about gratitude. Today I'd like to lead us to a third virtue, and that is the virtue of humility, humbleness, meekness, and in some sense, in a proper sense, lowliness, lowliness of spirit, poverty of spirit, Jesus called it, but I like the word humility. Now. You already see with wisdom, with gratitude, with humility that there's always strong interplay. There's clear overlap between the virtues. At the heart of last week's subject, gratitude, I I really believe this. If you think about it, I think you'll agree. At the heart of gratitude is the knowledge that I am a recipient. I'm a receiver. At the heart of gratitude is the acknowledgement that as receiver, I have received something from you that I didn't have that you did have. And that recognition is difficult for some because that recognition requires humility. It requires vulnerability. 
the admission that in my deficit you had strength and that your hands were the giving hands and my hands were the receiving hands. What often passes is humility is not humility at all. Peter somehow understanding the nature of the kingdom when Jesus moved toward his feet, Peter in feigned humility said, oh no, 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 you're not going to wash my feet. And that was no humility at all. We could talk so much about that, but humility um, is at the heart of gratitude. Gratitude has within its nature, within its disposition, a certain measure of hands up and hands open, vulnerable. Years ago, I guess Stan Jr. was about... <clears throat> Oh, I guess it's been eight years. So he was actually Nina's age. He was nine, going on 10. I remember we were sitting at the table and not unlike nine-year-olds, he was complaining about the food that he had been given for dinner. We're always, aren't we as parents, wrestling with that for a while. He thought the major food groups were hot dogs, chicken tenders, and macaroni and cheese. And pizza was somewhere in there as well. And he wasn't too proud of the green beans or broccoli that was on his plate. I'd had enough, and I don't know how therapeutically sound this was, but I'd had enough. Did I say I'd had enough? And I had just come home from a trip, and I told him about a little girl that I had met there. A little girl who was his age, and her mother had full-blown AIDS. And I remember her still. First time I saw her, barefooted, barely clothed, on her hip was her 11-month-old sister that she had been given charge of by her nearly deceased mother. I saw her at the end of a long trip across the large town there. Several miles she walked with her 11-month-old sister on her hip simply to share, hopefully, a bowl of rice with that little sibling of hers. And I told him over his green beans that he was not grateful for, about the look on her face. And about what a nine-year-old hand and an 11-month-old hand look like working together to form rice into clumps to eat with no seasoning. I didn't say anything after that. And I certainly didn't couch it in a measure of shame. I just told him the story, and I probably was about like I am now. And after a bit of silence, he spoke up and he said, profound words, simple words, but profound words. I'll never forget them. I can hear them right now. He sheepishly said, I hadn't thought about that. And such is the anatomy of gratitude. Taking the time to think thoughtfully about life. Taking the time to think thoughtfully. John, you just came back from a place that's a USO tour that's out in the bush is one of the three hungriest places in the world. You come back thinking differently, don't you? 
thinking about the givenness of life. It's no wonder that think and thank actually come from the same root. Because to be full of thinking is to be full if you have half sense of thanking. To be thoughtful ultimately is to be thankful. And on that day, a little nine-year-old boy understood wisdom, gratitude a little better because he was appropriately humbled by thought. And a little boy moved closer to being a man of God and was accordingly more grateful. Humility. Humility. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says that we should clothe ourselves, literally put it on. The writer said we should clothe ourselves in humility. Listen to this, a quote from Isaiah. I think the apostle, the epistle of James also addresses this same or uses this same text from Isaiah. We should clothe ourselves in humility, literally put it on our bodies in the morning when we wake up. Because God opposes the proud. Boy, there is a grain to the universe, and you can beat your head against that grain all day long. But there is a grain to the universe that if you find that flow, ultimately your spirituality won't even feel like you're swimming. You just caught the current and are riding it with the buoyancy of grace. God opposes the proud. The grain of the universe is not for the proud, but God gives grace, God gives grain, God gives flow to the humble. And in the presence of God, humble yourself, the writer said, and God will honor that. Micah 6 and 8, that famed text that we often quote in so many contexts, God has told us what is good. God's told us what is good. God's told us what is required of us. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Walk humbly. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, I could read scripture all day long, but just a few. Jesus looking out at a group of beleaguered, bedraggled people Essentially, the context where they, they were worn down by bad religion, shaming religion, fear-based religion. And Jesus looked at that crowd of people and he said, if you are tired, anybody tired today? If you're tired from carrying heavy burdens, I'll give you rest. Just stop there. Spend the week telling the Lord about your weariness and inquiring of him, what is this rest that he offers? Isaiah said, wherein the weary shall rest. This refreshing, wherein the world will be refreshed. If you're tired from carrying heavy burdens, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take the yoke, you know, those harnesses that animals wore. Take the yoke that I wear. Take the yoke, the calling, the baptism, the cup that I have that is linked to this 
thing called the kingdom of God and pull with me. Take my yoke. Put it on your shoulders, he said, and learn from me. Come into the gate with me. Get in that yoke and watch my feet as they move and move your feet the same way. Learn from me for, here he explains what you're going to learn. When you take my yoke and you learn from me, you will learn gentleness and humility. For God said in Christ, I am gentle. Oh, I wish I would have known a gentle God and humble. And because I'm gentle and humble, you'll find rest. And if you learn from me gentleness and humbleness, everybody that comes into your life will find rest. This yoke, he said, is easy to bear. The yoke of humility is easy to bear, and the burden of gentleness is light. Matthew 18 tells the story, it literally says, about that time, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What a question. Who is going to be the boss when we get to the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be the greatest? And this, this really strikes to the heart of the issue of humility. The question was, who will be the greatest in the kingdom? And the key there is there is an implication of comparison and competition. Inordinate comparison, inordinate unhealthy competition. And I just want to say this about comparison and competition. Taken to an unhealthy place, and only you and God can work that out, comparison and competition are the enemy of humility. Worrying about who's the greatest and who's not. Because as soon as you're worried about who's the greatest, you're also concerning yourself with who's not, aren't you? Because greatness, greatest, great, greater, greatest, not, does not imply that we're shoulder to shoulder working together. It implies we're face to face. Am I better? Do you love me more? Am I more important? Jesus, listen to the question, this comparative competitive question of who's the greatest in the kingdom and Jesus responds by looking to the crowd and he finds a child and he says hun come here and the little child came and stood near him the Bible said and Jesus said I'll tell you the truth you've got to change Though King James said that he told them, you must be converted. Conversion is not a one-time thing when you drop your nets and follow Jesus. Conversion is a lifelong healing process of following Jesus into an image that is in you and beyond you. I tell you the truth that you've got to change. And unless you change and become like this child you'll never be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never find the key that unlocks this domain that Luke 17, he said, was inside of you. Jesus said, I get you religious folk. You think the kingdom of heaven is coming. Sometimes you say it's over here or it's over there. 
But Jesus said, do you not know? And he was talking to folk who simply didn't get it, but he looked at them and he said, did you not know that the kingdom of heaven is within you? You'll never be able to take the journey deep into that home of God that is your soul. You'll never be able to explore that fullest part of you where God abides. I'll never forget a friend of mine in his mid-50s as we were dealing therapeutically with some of the broken places in his life that continued cyclically to cycle through and destroy him and those around him. I remember one day in a major breakthrough as he sat in the midst of all of that brokenness, sin, shame, and I challenged him and said, will you go with me? And he looked down into the abyss that was his soul and he said, I will not. I can't. I'm too old now to take that journey inward. The journey to the kingdom of heaven is a journey inward, Jesus said. It's a journey of courage. It's a coming home to yourself. It's Jacob leaving Laban's house and facing down the demons of the past. Separating his family, thinking himself good as dead, fearfully seeing Esau and falling at his feet, the one whom he had betrayed 20 years before. But there was no escaping, for as Plato said, the problem with that man was wherever he went, he took himself with him. And there is the real journey. And when Esau looked at him and forgave him, Jacob collapsed and said, your face is as the face of God for me. Salvation is coming home. Salvation is turning inward. Salvation is finding rest for God has found rest in you. I tell you the truth, except you become as a child, the one who dances no matter who's watching, the one unselfconscious and unaware, the one unabashed in their nakedness, except you become as a little child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. But if you're humble as this little child, you'll not only enter the kingdom, you'll be the greatest. You want greatness? You'll be the greatest in the kingdom. And it's a ubiquitous greatness. It's a greatness shared by all that needs not the frivolity and the drivel of comparison. Matthew 5 and 5, those who are humble, Jesus said, are happy. Philippians 2, when you do things, don't let selfishness and empty conceit, there, there are keys to the study of humility and to virtues. When you do things, don't let selfishness, which is an implication of community, and you are not operating properly in community. Self-interest is one thing. Self-interest is loving yourself and loving your neighbor. Selfishness is loving your neighbor. Selfishness is loving yourself at the expense of your neighbor. When you do things, don't let selfishness and empty conceit be your guide. Instead, listen to this, instead, instead of selfishness and empty conceit, with humility of mind. Oh, I love that. With humility of mind, as opposed to selfishness and climbing over people for your own sake, instead of conceit and arrogance, with humility of mind, give more honor to others than yourselves. And then Paul explains, do not be interested only in your own life, but be interested in the lives of others. You want humility? There it is. 
Don't be interested only in your own life. Be interested in the lives of others. God has called some other folk, beloved, besides you. Be interested in your life, but not only in your life. Be interested in the lives of others. The next line is great. Think the way Jesus thought. 2 Corinthians 8, we read it Wednesday night in our walk through the Bible. Who, though he was rich, became poor for your sake. And then Paul backed it up and said, but I'm not asking that of you. I'm just asking you to share that there might be an equality. The high mark of becoming poor from richness, he cast that on no one. Paul said, simply let there be an equality. This is at the heart of humility. Think the way Jesus thought. Christ was truly God, but Christ was truly God, but decided to give up that place of privilege. Or as one translator, and I mentioned this a few months ago, said that really the best rendering of that text is not though Christ was in the place of God, he humbled himself. The best rendering of that text is because Christ was in the place of God, he humbled himself. This is not strange that Christ would do this. It is in keeping with who God is. Christ was truly God, and because of that, he decided to give up the place of privilege, and he humbled himself, even to the death of a cross. And because of this, he has been raised to the highest place. Humility. It makes sense to me that humility comes from the Latin word humus, which, by the way, is also the Latin root from which we get the word human. And humus means ground, earth, soil. Humility. Earthiness. Soilishness of soul, groundedness. Genesis 2 7 said, The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground which God had called good. To be humble, then, from the earliest of our stories, to be humble is to be grounded. We were created from the ground. And every Ash Wednesday, we take the ashes of the ground, the ashes of earth, and place it on our forehead to remind us that of the earth we are. And the earth is good. To be human, to be truly human, is to be humble. To remember that we have arisen by the hand of God out of the earth. To be humble is to remember that life is a gift that life is beautiful, that we were created by love and for love. Gratitude is indeed the heart's memory. And humility is simply being who we are. Humility is simply being human, the offspring of God, living beings who live and breathe and have our very being in God, in the ground of all being, in the soil of all being, God. 
Humility is remembering that when God created us, God called us good, and then one day looked at us and said, it's not good. Unless we would be confused, God explained, it's not good for them to be alone. And upon creating the other, God stepped back and said, now that's not just good, that's very good. Humility is remembering that we are good, but we together are very good. Humility is remembering that the grace of variness only comes if another comes along. Humility is a virtue born of community. Humility is a virtue fostered by mutuality. Humility is simply shared goodness. Let me say it again. Humility is simply shared goodness. And when goodness is shared, God smiles and says, now that is very good. Humility is awareness of who we are and whose we are and that we are not alone in our belovedness. Humility recognizes the other. So God created humankind. God created humus kind. God created humble kind. And that is us. And when God made them from the earth, God shaped them in God's image and called them very good. The fact that for many, humility has become synonymous with self-diminishment. Oh, here it is now. The fact that for many, humility has become synonymous with self-diminishment, self-deprecation, self-hatred, self-loathing. The fact that for many, humility has become the rejection of their inherent created goodness is a great tragedy. And it is a tragedy that often has been fostered, I think, even within the bounds of the church. Fortunately for us, our sacred text speaks wisely to this tragedy. Because before the story of Genesis 3 is told, which is often where we start, unfortunately, there is another story, and it is the primal story of Genesis 1 and 2. While Genesis 3 tells the story of what we have labeled original sin and depravity, Genesis 1 and 2, as the foundation of our story, tells a greater and deeper story. Genesis 1 and 2 tells the story of our original blessedness, our original virtue, our original worth, and only then does the story of our frailty come along. Genesis 3, indeed, is the story of our fallenness. It's the story of our depravity. It's the story of what has been called brokenness, human immaturity and unwholeness, sickness, struggle. More aptly, I believe, Genesis 3 is the story of shame. Genesis 3 is my story, and I am no fool to not recognize it. Genesis 3 is a story of loss indeed. But to my great relief, the gospel came and has explained to me that Genesis 3, while a story of loss, is not a story of total loss. What is lost in Genesis 3, the Genesis 3 of my life, not of history, but the Genesis 3 of all of our lives, what is lost is not the image of God. What is lost is not our belovedness. What is lost is not our virtue, our essence, our fabric, not our worth, not our identity. 
But what is lost in Genesis 3 is our sense of these things. We could never lose our belovedness, but many of us have struggled, Mark, our whole life with the sense of belovedness. Where could we go to get away from God? Though we made our bed in hell, he is there. And yet even God in human form, in humus form, in humbled form, cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But this was not reality. This was only his sense. This is our brokenness. Our brokenness is that we hear the footsteps of God, and when coupled with our brokenness, our only response is to hide. And this, not our sin, causes the tears of God. Every human lives this story. Every human is born in Eden, and every human then moves east of Eden on a prodigal journey. And it is a prodigal journey not to move to a new land, but the prodigal journey of every person east of Eden is to come home to ourselves first and then come home again to Eden. To come home to a place where we are clothed with humility. The philosophers have called this place the place of second naivete. As one wise philosopher said, the young one who doesn't cry is a barbarian. The old one who doesn't laugh is a fool. To come home laughing all the way, Stephen, through the tears, recognizing that belovedness was never gone to argue with the voice that calls us beloved and to tell him we are worthy of no such thing, only to hear him say, get a ring, get a robe, kill a fatted calf. We were never a slave as the elder brother believed. We were always a son. We simply didn't know it. The journey of every soul, the journey of humility, the journey of humus, the journey to the ground of all being is to come again to our life as a child to be converted back, not to another, but to the child inside of us, to move through the hog pen of striving, competition, and comparison, and come back to community in a shared belovedness. No, humility is not the self-loathing of Genesis 3. That is shame. That is false humility. That is our greatest sin. As Golda Meir famously said, stop, stop acting so humble. You're not that great. Our greatest sin, David, is to say, you can't wash my feet. You can't forgive me. Make me a servant. Humility is not shame. Humility is not that which causes us to hide from one another and God. Humility is not that which causes us to hide behind the shrubbery and the bushes and the trees. Humility is not that which causes us to clothe ourselves in isolation to clothe our vulnerability with decaying and ineffectual leaves, fig leaves of false selves and addiction and posturing. That's not humility. Humility is homecoming. Humility is an easy yoke and a light burden. Humility is humus. Humility is human. It is earthy and easy. Humility is breathing the breaths of God and hearing them and seeing them in the nostrils and chests of the one beside us. Humility is remembering the soulish gardening of God, the memory of God's hand shaping the earth into the image of God seen in my own face. Humility is a grounded human. 
Humility is the dirt under God's fingernails that is you, the apple of his eye. While it is true that humility is not thinking too highly of yourself, it is equally true that humility is not thinking too lowly of yourself. Humility is thinking properly of yourself. And where do we receive the proper vision of ourselves? Well, of course, we receive it from the one who created us, that one who called us good, very good, the image of God, of the earth earthy, of God godly. As humility is indeed the opposite of arrogance, it is also the opposite of shame, of despair, and of self-hatred. Christianity born of a barbaric, hurtful world, Christianity born out of a world where kings power played over dead men's bodies to the throne. Christianity for our first 2,000 years has emphasized greatly that humility is the opposite of arrogance and pride. A residual effect of brokenness in our life is the Siamese twin of arrogance and pride, and that is despair, shame, and self-hatred. As surely as humility is the opposite of arrogance, it is also the opposite of self-loathing. Humility means to bring low if we are too high, a problem that my background never afforded me. But I am thankful to find that humility not only means to bring low if we're too high, I am thankful to find that humility means to bring high if we are too low. When someone who is arrogant is brought low, they are humbled. When someone who is shamed is brought from the crowd and neither condemned, that one who is brought higher is humbled. Humility is not about coming high or coming low. Humility is about coming to the ground of all being from whichever direction you find yourself. That is why John the Baptist said when the Christ comes, he will fill every valley and he will level every mountain. And perhaps there have been moments, mountains of arrogance and conceit, selfishness and isolation in my life that have had to be leveled. But more often than not, there have been deficits and valleys. Humility is a virtue born of community. And before I conclude, I want to read to you one simple, <clears throat> simple rubric of thought by a great psychoanalyst from the 20th century by the name of W.R. Fairbairn, a man that I have read after in my pursuit of being at least an amateur pastoral therapist. Fairbairn said self-hatred can be a way, please hear it, self-hatred can be a way of keeping father and mother good. What did he mean by this? Keeping father and mother good. I'll never forget when the therapist looked at me in my hour of deconstruction and that great soul she looked at me and said, why do you defend your parents and your upbringing so? Well, because they deserve it. And I can look into that camera and tell Stephen Shirley Mitchell, you've done good. But I defended them inordinately. And why did I do that? 
Children enter life, Fairbairn said, completely vulnerable and defenseless. Children come to life incapable of caring for themselves. And in the normal setting, Fairbairn says, they are cared for, and the primary dispenser of this care is their parent. This radical dependence is ultimately recognized by the baby and internalized by the child, and the child develops a need to see their parents as dependable. The child develops the need to see their parents as good and capable of meeting their needs. Because if they aren't, the child's needs will go unmet. The thought of being dependent on a parent who is unreliable, uncaring, unloving, and indifferent, perhaps even abusive, is so frightening that even if this is what the child is experiencing, Fairbairn says they will yet idealize the parent. And I will never forget the evening with a social worker friend of mine as we pulled the child out of a 28-degree car in downtown Nashville as the mother lay addicted to heroin in the front seat. And Bill, we heard that four-year-old child screaming, Mama, rescuing her from hypothermia and abuse. The thought of being the parent dependent upon a parent who is abusive is too painful, so the parent is idealized. And this idealizing of the parent is what Fairbairn called keeping mother good, keeping father good, because it is too frightening for the child to admit the reality. So where does the parent's badness go? You know. Some of you have lived it. The child absorbs it into itself. By taking the parent's failures into herself, the child is attempting to control them. It was my fault. Mama is good. The child is subconsciously saying, it is better for me to be bad than for my parents to be bad, and by extension for the whole world and even God to be bad. I can live with me being bad. I cannot afford a world where my mama is bad. I cannot afford a world where the world is bad. I can afford being bad, therapist Paul, but I can't afford a God who is bad. And so we scapegoat ourselves and we take the sins of the parent upon and we bruise ourselves to the marrow of our soul in an attempt to protect ourselves from a reality that we cannot embrace and we have no skill to embrace. That is why the great work of every human soul is the reparenting at the hand of God. And there is no avoiding the fact that as humans, we derive our first notions of God from our perception and experience of our most immediate caregivers, generally our parents. And when parents fail, which to some degree we all do, children are destabilized and self-loathing can be the result. And in the worst case, we learn self-hatred as an attempt to keep God good. And in a world like ours, we so often feel the only way we can keep God good is to take all of the badness into ourselves, and thus our praise songs are replete with how awful we are and why God shouldn't love us. 
We effort so in our religion to beat ourselves sore, to hide from him because his footsteps we cannot bear. Because if I am a dog and if I am worthless, if I am a worm and unlovable, then I can tell everyone how good God is because can't you see how wonderful God is for caring for someone so bad as me? And yet the driving fear behind this pathology is our belief that God really isn't good. That what we cannot afford actually is true. God is not loving. And as a matter of fact, he really does hit me. She really does abuse me. Is going to get me and hurt me. And the only chance I have, the only chance I feel I have of warding off this is if I punish myself first. And so we hire priests as professionals to broker our deal. We build altars to buffer us between the great one that we fear. We send sacrifices of pain that maybe if we hurt ourselves enough and self-disparage enough that he will not tell the eternal joke on us. And by the time he gets here, if I have punished myself enough, if I have been beaten enough, I will have beaten him to the punch. Humility, Paul Tillich said, is when the gospel comes to us when we are feeling most trapped, not in our arrogance, but in our self-hatred. And Tillich said, at that moment, a wave of light breaks into our darkness, and it is though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted by that which is greater than you, the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Ask not for the reason. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. And if that happens to us, we experience grace. And that is the measure of humility. And Gerald Manley Hopkins said, my own heart, let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter, kind, charitable, not live this tormented mind with this tormented mind tormenting yet. To all of you who think you're better than the folks sitting around you, be humbled now. They are the gifts and the image of God near you. To the greater majority of you who still wrestle, feigned in arrogance and conceit, but wallowing in your own self-doubt, be humbled now by the hand of God that lifts you up, that calls you beloved. This, brothers and sisters, is the truth of the virtue of humility. Can you say amen? amen. Let's pray together. Lord, humble God, humble God, God yoked with sharing, not competition, God yoked with gentleness, not striving, God yoked in peace, not comparison. Sweet, humble God, level the mountains of conceit that reside in my heart. Coax me by the voice that calls me beloved, 
from behind the bushes and the fig leaves that I hide my brokenness behind. Lift us up now by the mighty hand of God that we might share that name that is above every name, the name of the humble one, Jesus. Lord, let us find true humility, not false. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said,